We are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a New Testament or of a new covenant. Same Greek word for testament or covenant. Some translations use the word testament. Others use the word covenant. Either way, it's the exact same Greek word. It's just translated differently by different versions of the Bible. Now, we're on teaching number 43, and it's the New Testament of grace draws us close to God. And just always as a little disclaimer, when we talk about the New Testament, we're not talking about books of the Bible. When the Bible mentions the words New Testament, it's never talking about books of the Bible. It's always talking about the blood of Christ. It's talking about the cross, everything God did for us to bring us into a close relationship through what Jesus did at the cross. So as I reference New Testament tonight, just know I'm not talking about Matthew through Revelation that I'm I'm talking about the blood of Christ. I'm talking about the cross of Christ, which is what the writers of the Bible are referring to as well. We're going to be looking at tonight, Hebrews 10, 5 through 22. And the writer of Hebrews, really the entire book of Hebrews, the, the whole purpose of this book is to educate the reader on what God has done for us in Christ in establishing the New Testament of grace to bring us close to him. The major contrast in the book of Hebrews is the law cannot bring anybody close to God. It keeps people at a distance. Whereas the grace of the Lord Jesus, this New Testament of grace, actually brings us close to God. We don't bring ourselves close to God. We don't do anything to get close to God. God has brought us close to himself through what God has done for us in Christ. And when we trust in in what Jesus has done, we then experience that closeness, which can never be lost. It's an eternal closeness. This is an eternal covenant that brings an eternal closeness with God. We see in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, how inadequate the law is to bring a person close to God. We looked at this in Hebrews teaching number 42, but we'll read through it and then we'll move into verse five. Hebrews 10, one through four says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. The good things are the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant, complete forgiveness, complete righteousness, closeness with God, cleansed from all sins, purified from all sins. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The reality is Jesus. The reality is what Jesus has done for us. For this reason, it, that's the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it's going back to the book of Leviticus and and Deuteronomy and Exodus with all the animal sacrifices for the, the people of Israel during that time, all the way up until Jesus died on the cross says, for this reason, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect. That means complete purification from sins, complete cleansing from sins, forgiveness, and enabling us to be close to God, to be in complete fellowship with him, eternal fellowship with him. So the law cannot bring anybody close to God. Otherwise, would they, the law and the animal sacrifices, not have stopped being offered? If the law could bring a person close to God, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be consistently done. We are close to him because of what Jesus has done for us. 
So otherwise, would they, these sacrifices under the law, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers, those desiring to be close to God, would have been cleansed once and for all if the law was adequate to bring a person close to God. Now, the word cleanse here is the same word for purified in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus purifies, cleanses from all sins. That's what the New Testament of grace is about. That's what his blood is about. For under the law, if the law would have brought somebody close to God, the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. The law can't take care of our sins. The law can't take care of our guilt. But the cross does. Our guilt was carried to the cross with Jesus, nailed there. Our sins were nailed there. And we don't have to live in the guilt of our sins because we're now innocent before God. We're righteous before God. We're holy. We're pure before God because of what Christ has done for us. Verse 3 of Hebrews 10. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. And that's not how God wants us living. God doesn't want us living day after day after day seeking forgiveness for sins. He wants us living in the fullness of the truth that all of our sins have been forgiven and we're not guilty. We're innocent and therefore we can be close to God. Verse four, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God wants to be close to us. So God had to, in order to be close to us relationally, which is why he created us, in order for Him us to be close to him, which is why we were created, God had to do something about the sin issue. And he did do something about it. He stepped out of heaven to earth in Christ and took sin upon himself. And he eternally removed the sin that would keep a person from being close to him and in relationship with him. And then he comes to live in us. He comes to dwell within us. So that's what we're going to look at starting in Hebrews 10, 5 through 22. What has Jesus done in establishing this New Testament of grace that the law could not do, which is bring a person close to God by taking away sin, by removing the sin that separated God and humanity, that kept humanity at a distance from God and God at a distance from humanity? Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 says this, therefore, when Christ came into the world, the word Christ simply means Savior King. The Jewish scriptures talk about the Messiah coming. It's translated as Christ in the English scriptures. The one who was coming into the world to be the Savior of the world by taking away our sins and to be a king to rule the world in justice. And we look at our world right now, we need justice. Justice does not exist in the leaders of the world. But Jesus, when he returns to establish his kingdom, he's going to be a just leader. Justice will flow from his throne for a thousand years. And then ultimately we will move into the new earth that's talked about in Revelation 21. So verse 5 of Hebrews 10, therefore, when Christ came into the world, the Jewish scripture says Christ is coming, a Messiah is coming. Genesis 3.15, one's coming into the world who's going to defeat Satan. When Christ came into the world, he said, now this is a quotation of Psalm chapter 40, 
verses six through eight in the Septuagint version. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Jewish scriptures. The Jewish scriptures were written in Hebrew. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of those Hebrew scriptures. So the writer of Hebrews quotes specifically out of the Septuagint because he's writing to Jewish people who spoke the Greek language. Many of these Jewish people that he's writing to didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Greek. So the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint, which would have been the scriptures that the Jewish people who spoke Greek would have read out of. They wouldn't have read out of the Jewish scriptures. They would have read out of the Septuagint, which was the translation from Jewish Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language. So verse five, Hebrews 10, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is a quotation of the writer of Hebrews of Psalm 40, verses six through eight in the Septuagint. So here's what the Christ said as spoken about and prophesied about in Psalm 46 through eight. It's probably not going to look maybe as similar as, as if you look in your Bibles, because this is right out of the Septuagint. So it could be a little different. So if you see a difference, that's why. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. This is the Messiah speaking. This is the Christ speaking in Psalm 46 through eight. So sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I, that's the Messiah, the Christ said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So the Messiah has come to do the will of God. The Messiah has come to do the will of God, the Christ, the Messiah. So what I want us to do is break down these verses a little bit more closely, examine them a little bit more closely, starting in Hebrews 10, 5 through 6. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. The you there is God. The Messiah is talking to God, saying you did not desire the sacrifices that are found in Leviticus through Deuteronomy that are practiced by the priest. This really wasn't the heart of God because the heart of God is to be close to humanity. The sacrifices and offerings could not bring anyone close to God. And God did not desire these, but they covered the sins of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel for a short time. God could dwell among them to an extent in the tabernacle that Moses set up, ultimately the temple that Solomon built in the most holy place. But that, that's as close as he could get to the people. It wasn't what God desired. God wants eternal closeness with humanity. Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire with burnt offerings and sin offerings, again, right out of Leviticus, right out of Deuteronomy, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. So the question is, God, why weren't you pleased with these sin offerings? And I think about two reasons. There's, I'm sure, more, but two reasons come to my mind of why God was not pleased with the sin offerings. One, I think just the whole animal sacrificial system was not pleasing to God. God did not like seeing animals sacrificed. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Well, what we see is an animal was sacrificed in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were clothed with the animal skins. 
God didn't delight in that. God doesn't delight in, in animal sacrifices, but the animal became a substitute for Adam. The animal died in the place of Adam and in the place of Eve. That gave God no pleasure to sacrifice an animal in the Garden of Eden to cover Adam's sin until Jesus ultimately took that sin upon himself. The animal is just a picture or a shadow of Jesus, that the Lamb of God coming to take the sin of humanity upon himself. And the writer of Hebrews or the writer of Romans writes about this in Romans 5, 12 through 21, that death came through Adam, life came through Jesus. Jesus took the sin of Adam upon himself for all humanity. But God was never pleased with animal sacrifices under the law. None of us like seeing animals killed. We don't even like seeing animals put to death. Animals that, that have no home, they've taken to a rescue place for animals. And ultimately, they have to put some of these animals down. That, that doesn't bring any of us joy or delight, and nor did it God as well. And I think the second reason that God found no pleasure in the sacrificing of animals is it couldn't forgive sin. It couldn't take away sin. It, it couldn't bring us close to God eternally. So God found no pleasure in the sacrifice of animals under the law of Moses. All right, Hebrews 10, 5, this is the Christ speaking, the Messiah. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. God prepared a body for the Messiah. God prepared a body for the Christ. And we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem, a real person. Hebrews chapter 2, the Son of Man means 100% human. Jesus was 100% human. He had a human body. So the question is, why did God the Father prepare a body for the Son? And we find this in 1 Peter 2.24. Says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So, on the cross, the body of Jesus was nailed. The body of Jesus being nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. Jesus took away our sins. The law could never take away our sins, the law couldn't pay our sin debt. But what the law couldn't do, the cross did. Jesus did. Our sin debt was nailed to the cross with Jesus. And it's really interesting that Peter says here, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. So not just on his body, but in his body. And I think about Matthew chapter five, when Jesus is seeking to convince the self-righteous Jewish leaders of their sinfulness and he says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've had lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've had anger in your heart, you've committed murder. And so sin is not only what we do externally. Sin actually originates from the sin within a person internally. So Jesus took not only the external sins of the world, but he took the internal sins, the thoughts, the sinful thoughts, the sinful attitudes that we have. Jesus took our sins for the whole world, for all sins, on himself, on his body, and in his body at the cross. He had to become human because the ultimate penalty for Adam was death, right? When Jesus became human, the Messiah, the Christ became human. Isaiah 53 talks about this. 
he became human. He had a body so that he could die our death. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 talks about the body of Jesus. Jesus himself talks about his body in Matthew 26, 26 through 28. And it reads this way. And as they were eating, that's he and the 12 disciples. Just prior to his going to the cross, they're in the upper room. Many people know this as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Some translations say the New Testament. For this is my blood of the new covenant, or the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Blood simply means Jesus died. It's the death. Blood symbolizes death. So Jesus, with his body, took upon the sins of the world and died our death. That's the body prepared for Jesus. So remember, we're reading in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, which quotes, the writer quotes Psalm 46 through 8 about God preparing a body for the Christ. And we've seen that the body was the body of the Messiah, Jesus. His body was to take upon the sins of himself upon the world and to establish the new covenant or the New Testament where we have the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. That's why he was given a body. And then verse 7, then I, that's the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, said, Here I am. He's talking to God. Here I am, God. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So let's break this down a little bit further. What does it mean when Jesus says, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll? When he says the scroll, he's talking about the Jewish scriptures. He's talking about the 39 books of the Jewish scriptures. Many people refer to those 39 books as the Old Testament. That's inaccurate because the Old Testament is not about books. It's about blood. The Old Testament is in effect all the way through the book of Matthew when Jesus dies on the cross. So we've got to really retrain our minds to think biblically, not traditionally. Traditionally, when we hear Old Testament, we think books. Biblically, that's incorrect. The scroll was the Jewish scriptures. The first 39 books contained in our Bible was the scroll. And the scroll, the Jewish scriptures, pointed to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. You can look in Genesis 3.15 if anybody wants to do any further study. I'm just going to read some verses where you can do some further study on the scroll identifying that a Messiah is coming. And then we find in Matthew, in the genealogy of Matthew, that that Messiah, that Christ is Jesus. But the scroll, you can look in Genesis 3.15, Psalm 16.25 through 28, Psalm 110, Psalm 9.6 through 7, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. 
Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Daniel 2, 44, Daniel 7, 9 through 14, Daniel 7, 27, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, Micah 5, 2. That's only just, just a handful of the scriptures that refer to the coming of the Messiah. Hebrews chapter 1 quotes a lot from the scroll from the Jewish scriptures about Jesus, the Messiah, being fully God, quotes in Hebrews 2 about Jesus being the son of man, meaning 100% man. He was fully God and fully man. Now, the scrolls are quoted or referred to in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, they quote from the scrolls, literally from the scrolls, because that's what they had then. They, They had scrolls. So they're quoting from the Jewish scripture is what they're quoting from. For example, you can look at Matthew 3, 3 through 6, Matthew 11, 3, Matthew 21, 5, Luke 1, 31 through 33, Luke 4, 16 through 21, Luke 24, 13 through 32. That's when Jesus was with the two men on the road to Emmaus, and he opened the Jewish scriptures to show them how the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. John 4:42, John 6:14, John 7:25 through 52, John 11:27, John 12:15, Acts 2:14 through 39, Acts 8:26 through 35. That's when Philip was with the Ethiopian eunuch, opened the scriptures, explained Isaiah 53 that Jesus was the one of Isaiah 53. Acts 13:13 13, 13 through 39. That's Paul's first message that's recorded in the scriptures that we have. And he's seeking to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And he uses the scrolls to do so. First John 4, 14 through 15. So that's just a few of the places in uh, from Matthew through Revelation that quotes from the Jewish scrolls about Jesus being the Messiah. I want us to zero in on one of the ones we looked at a minute ago, Luke 14, 16 through 21. And this is when Jesus came to the synagogue in his hometown. It's the, it's the synagogue he grew up in. It's where he went when he was a little boy. It's where Mary and Joseph would have taken him every Sabbath. The people knew him very well. They knew his family very well. Jesus is now 30 years old or so, and he goes to the synagogue on that Sabbath day, as was his custom. And this is what Luke says, Luke 4, 16 through 21. says, he, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Remember, in Hebrews, we're looking at what's written about me in the scroll. Well, this is one of the places here, uh, Luke 4, 16 through 22. Jesus is actually reading this in his synagogue that he grew up in. So there's a crowd of people there. And it was the habit of someone to stand and read the scroll. And evidently it was Jesus's turn that Sabbath. And they were at this place in Isaiah. So Jesus stands up to read. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And this is Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. This is the exact scriptures that Jesus read on that Sabbath at the synagogue. 
And this is what Jesus read, starting with verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the time of grace. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on Jesus. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And that's what he was telling them because Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 was a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Jesus stands up. He reads Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And it wasn't long that they were trying to throw him off the cliff. They rejected him. It, it was the Jewish people rejecting Jesus as the Christ. And it continued all the way through when Stephen was stoned in the Sanhedrin, uh, the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And we look in the book of Acts and we see consistently Paul's trying to convince the Jewish people Jesus is the Christ. Other teachers are trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. So remember, we're, we're examining Psalm chapter 40, verses 5 through 6 in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, which is the writer quotes it there. In Hebrews 10, 5 through 22, it's all about closeness with God. This is what this whole passage is about. It's about closeness with God. And that's what we're going to see as we unfold this scripture a little bit more. So the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 46 through 8 in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Let's read this one more time. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. That's the body of the Messiah. That's Christ. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Verse 7, then I said, that's the Messiah speaking as quoted in Psalm 46 through 8. Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, that's the Jewish scriptures predicting the coming of the Messiah. I have come to do your will, my God. Now the question we want to ask here is, what is the will of God that Christ Jesus came to do? What is that will? Jesus came to do the will of God. And it took a body for him to do the will of God because a body you prepared for me. So with this prepared body, he was going to be enabled to do the will of God. So what is the will of God that Christ Jesus came to do? We get some insight into this in Matthew 26, 39. This is when Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. He's moments away from being arrested. He's moments away from facing a trial, from being hit and whipped and mocked and beat and ultimately nailed to the cross. It's just hours away. And he's in the garden and he says this. It says, going a little further, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And remember, we just read in Hebrews 10, 7, the Christ with a body prepared for him, says, I've come to do your will, my God. So now he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
He's about to go to the cross. And he says, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as, as you will. So we see that the will of God for Jesus is this cup. Now the question is, what's the cup? Because if we can answer what the cup is, then we will know what the will of God is for Jesus, because the will of God and the cup are the same. Well, just back up a little bit in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. It says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, all of you drink of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant or the new Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The cup is the New Testament. The cup is the new covenant. The cup is the cross. The cup is the blood of Jesus. The cup is the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's what the cup is. So the will of God is the establishment of the New Testament of grace by Jesus going to the cross. The cross is the cup. It's the suffering. It's the nails being driven into his hands. It's the rejection. It's the beating that he endured when he was going to the cross. So we're examining this prophecy made about Jesus in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. That's recorded in Hebrews 10, 5 through 6. What the writer does in Hebrews 10, 8 through 9 is he explains what the will of God is for the Messiah. It's the New Testament, but we're really going to see this in Hebrews 10, 8 through 9, because the writer of Hebrews is explaining what Psalm 46 through 8 is all about. Starting with Hebrews 10, 8. First, he, the Christ, said in Psalm 46 through 8, first, he, the Christ, said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you do not desire, nor were you pleased with them, but they were offered in accordance with the law. Verse 9, then he, the Christ, said in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, here I am, I have come to do your will. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us exactly what this will is that the Messiah came to do with the body that had been prepared for him. Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant of law, the first testament or the Old Testament. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first covenant of law that could not take away sins, that cannot cleanse from sins, that cannot draw anybody close to God in relationship. He sets aside the first testament to establish the second testament. So what was the will of God for the Messiah? And why did God prepare a body for the Messiah? Because through the body of the Messiah, he was going to establish the New Testament of grace and end the Old Testament of law. He sets aside the first covenant of law. That means it had come to an end. It's obsolete. Hebrews 
8.13. He sets aside the first covenant of law to establish forever for eternity. It's an eternal covenant. The second covenant, and it's a covenant of grace. So that's what the Messiah came to do. He came to bring a new covenant so he could bring us close to God. He came to end the covenant of law that could not take away sins by taking sins upon himself, and he established the New Testament of grace, which now we can be close to God eternally in relationship with him. So the writer at this point begins to more fully explain this Second Testament of how it's different than the First Testament. The First Testament could not take away sins. The First Testament could not cleanse from sins. The First Testament of law could not remove the guilt that people felt who wanted to be close to God. But what the First Testament couldn't do, the Second Testament did. And Jesus established this testament in his blood, this new way of relating to God. So let's see what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 10 through 22, when he explains the Second Testament, which is this New Testament of grace. Hebrews 10, 10 says this, and by that will, that's the New Testament, that's the new covenant, that's the will of God for the Messiah to establish the New Testament in his blood. It's what the entire book of Hebrews is about, explaining this. And by that will, testament, or covenant, we have been made holy, that's purified from all sins, cleansed from all sins, forgiven of all sins, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, remember in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, they were always sacrificing animals. There were millions of sacrifices that had happened for 1,500 years under the law. And with all those millions of sacrifices, none could take away sins and none could purify from sins. But with one sacrifice for all sins for all time, reaching back to Adam and all the way to the last sin is committed on earth, Jesus, with his one sacrifice, took care of billions of sins. With one sacrifice through this testament, the covenant, through this new covenant. That's why it's so important we understand the New Testament is not about books. It's about the blood of Christ, and his blood purifies and cleanses from all sins, forgives all sins. And now we've been made holy, which is why we can now be close to God, because Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. And we can be close to God without being consumed by God. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been made is permanent and complete. It's finished. It's done. We don't get more holy. We don't pursue a holy standing before God. We have been made holy because we can't make ourselves holy. If I can make myself holy, then I don't need the blood of Jesus. I don't need the cross of Jesus. I don't need Jesus at all, but we need Jesus because we're unholy. We can't make ourselves holy. He took the unholiness of our sins upon himself, and he gives us his holiness, his righteousness, his cleansing, his purity from sins. Let's move on in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. That's under the law. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That's what Hebrews 10, 4 said. 
But when this priest talking about Jesus and it's referring back to Melchizedek, Jesus would come in the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6 and 7. This is referring to Psalm 110, that one was coming in the order of Melchizedek. The Christ would come in the order of Melchizedek is what Psalm 110 is about. He would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he would be a king and he would be a savior. And so that was one of the prophecies in the scroll that the Messiah was going to come in the order of Melchizedek, which is why the writer of Hebrews spends so much time on that in Hebrews 6 and 7, because he's trying to convince the Jewish people that the prophecy that they knew about, the Messiah would come in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That's the whole purpose. So that theme of Jesus coming in the order of Melchizedek as the priest, the order of Melchizedek, is continued by the writer of Hebrews and references this in Hebrews 10, 12. It's a contrast between Jesus as the final high priest and the earthly priests under the law of Moses, Jesus ushered in a whole new covenant, a whole new testament as the, as the priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when this priest had offered for all time, all the way back to Adam, all the way into the future for all sins. But when this priest had offered for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was done. It was finished. It was complete. Forgiveness had been provided for the entire world now. That's simply received by faith. And since that time, he waits for his enemies. That's those who reject Jesus to be made his footstool. That's when he returns to reign as king. You can look at Daniel 2.44, Daniel 7.14, Daniel 727, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Luke 1, 31 through 33, Acts 1, 3 through 7, and Revelation eleven fifteen. Jesus is the Christ. He's not only the Savior of the world, saving us from our sins, but he is the king. He's going to rule in justice, and, and that day is going to come. Let's look at Hebrews 10, 14 now. And by one sacrifice, of all the millions of sacrifices since the book of Leviticus came into existence, None of them could take away sins. None could cleanse from sins. None could draw a person close to God. But by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, I want to stop here. The word being is not in the Greek manuscripts. Several versions or translations add the word being because of their theology, the theology of the translators. But there are other versions that do not put the word being in there because it's not, it's not in there. The New American Standard Bible doesn't use the word being. The New English Translation doesn't use the word being. The New Revised Standard Version doesn't insert the word being. All of those read this way. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are made holy. That fits with the passage. Inserting the word being there throws it all out because it ruins Hebrews 10, 14. We have been made holy. This is saying exactly what Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 10, we have been made holy. This is staying with that reference, 10, 14, we have been made holy. So the question is this, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect 
Perfect there means completely cleansed from all sins, fully forgiven of all sins, perfectly righteous before God. We can't improve on perfection. Jesus took all of our sin and gave us all of his sinlessness. He gave us all of his righteousness. The blood of Jesus truly has purified us from all sin. So we want to ask, well, for how long? If the blood of Jesus has purified from all sins, then for how long does this purification last in the life of a believer? Forever. We are purified from all sins. We are forgiven of all sins. We are perfect before God. That's why we can be close to God. If we weren't perfect before him, we couldn't be close to him. For by one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever through what Jesus did, the body of Messiah, the body you prepared for me, this second covenant is we have been made holy by one sacrifice for all time, for all sins, for all people, for all time. And by faith, we receive this and we enter into a close relationship with God that can never be broken or can never be disrupted. Now, one of the discussions among theologians, Bible teachers, believers, is this idea of, is sanctification positional and progressive? And most Bible teachers teach that, well, sanctification is positional. Yes, in Christ you are holy, but in reality you're not. That's what they're saying. It's, it's positionally you are, but personally you're not. And so I wanted to do a study on this, and that's one of the things I did for this whole month of July for a lot of it as I studied this topic and began writing about it because somebody had asked me about it. And I'd never written about it before. I taught on it, but never written specifically about it. But what I discovered is the word sanctification is used three different ways in the Bible, especially starting with after the work of Christ on the cross. And the first way sanctification is used is this way is the eternal and permanent purification of all of our sins by the blood of Jesus. It starts the moment anyone places his or her faith in Jesus. All right. This isn't positional sanctification. This isn't progressive sanctification. This is actual sanctification is what I call it. It's personal sanctification. It's real sanctification. It is a reality. You are sanctified. You are purified. You are cleansed. You are forgiven because of what Christ has done for you. And you've placed your faith in Jesus. Jesus talks about this in Acts 26, verse 18. People are sanctified by faith in me. Peter writes about it in Acts 15, 10. Paul uses this type of sanctification in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, And we just read about it in Hebrews 10, 10 and 14. That's the first type of sanctification we see in scripture. Second type of sanctification we see is the continuation of offering our bodies to God for purity to flow through us and for God's purposes to be filled in us. That's Romans 6, 13 through 29, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 2, 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15, be holy as I am holy. Now, this sanctification has absolutely nothing to do with purification from sins, has nothing to do with forgiveness for sins. It's simply setting aside our bodies for God's will and his work to be done in us and through us. Now, that's something we do progressively. We don't make ourselves holy. There's no distinction between positional and progressive here. It's I present my body to God. And that's what these verses are all saying about, are, are talking about, because we've been made holy. 
And now I'm going to present my body to God as a holy person for holiness to flow through. But I don't become more holy as I do that. And Paul doesn't give any reason to believe that's the case in that use of sanctification. An example of giving our bodies to God for his will to be done through us is seen by Jesus himself in John 17, 17 through 20. Jesus says this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, that's not talking about the Bible. Most people, when they read that, they say, oh, okay, you read the Bible and it sanctifies you. That is so far from the context. The Bible wasn't even around when Jesus said these words. He's praying to the Father for his 11 disciples at at this time. And he's praying to the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, what's the word in context? The word in context is two things. It's the identification of Jesus as the Christ, and it's the protection of the 11 from the evil one. And it's the third thing. It's, and then it's communication of Jesus as the Christ by the disciples. It's, it's Jesus is saying, Father, set aside these disciples by the truth that I am the Messiah. Protect them from the evil one. Set them aside from the harm of the evil one and set them aside to communicate the truth that I am the Messiah. We see Peter doing that in Acts chapter two. We see Philip doing that. We we see the declaration that Jesus is the Christ in the book of Acts. Then he says in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's the sanctification. I'm sending them. You protect them. I'm going to send them. You protect them. You set them aside from harm of the evil one. Use them to communicate the truth that I am the Messiah. That's the word of truth there. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself. So Jesus didn't need purification from sins at all. So we can't always read the word sanctify and think it means purification from sins because it doesn't. The context is always going to tell us what the word means. Jesus is simply saying, I sanctify myself, meaning I am setting aside my body to establish the New Testament of grace. That, that's what we've seen, a body you've prepared for me. So Jesus is saying, I'm sanctifying myself. I am giving my body to the Father. And then we see him later praying, if there's any other way to, to do this, take this cup from me. He's, he's sanctified himself. He's presenting his body to the Father so that he can go to the cross for us, says, for I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. In the sanctification of Jesus, they will be truly sanctified. We are truly sanctified, meaning now we're talking about the purification of sins. Because Jesus sanctified himself, meaning he set aside his body to go to the cross, that was the Father's will, I've come to do your will, the will of the Father was for Jesus to go to the cross to establish the New Testament. Jesus is saying here, I sanctify myself. Remember, Jesus had just been in the upper room with the disciples. Remember, he's been talking to them about giving his body for the New Testament. We're not far beyond that when Jesus is praying in the garden. I mean, maybe an hour. So we got to put all this in context here. Jesus is sanctifying himself. He's offering his body to go to the cross to establish the New Testament. And in that, they will be truly sanctified. 
they will be truly cleansed and purified from all sins and and the spirit of Christ can indwell in them and can speak through them to proclaim to the world that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. We see Jesus sanctifying himself, Matthew 26, 26 through 28, when he says, this is my body for the New Testament. We also see it in Luke 22, 19 through 21. That's Jesus sanctifying himself. He's offering his body to the Father for the New Testament to be established, this complete forgiveness, full forgiveness and cleansing of sins to come to us. We see it again in Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. That's Jesus sanctifying himself. He's offering his body to the Father for the New Testament to be established in his blood. So whenever we see the word sanctify, it doesn't automatically mean purification from sin. Sometimes it's just I'm setting aside my body for the purposes of God to flow through me to whoever he wants to use my body to impact and influence. And that's something we do progressively. God use me. Here I am, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my my voice in in any way you want to. That would be sanctifying ourselves, not for the purification of sins, because we never do that. Jesus has done that for us. But for God's will to be done in and through us. And then the, the third sanctification that I saw in Scripture came out of 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 through 13 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24, which is done by God himself. It's the transformation by God over the course of time to grow us in love toward others, bring peace within us, and fulfill his purposes in and through us. You can go to my, my website. It's called Grace Reach. It's gracereach.org. On the title page of the blog, it has all the titles of all the articles that I've written. And one that I've written is, is sanctification positional, progressive, or neither? And I explain that fully in about six articles that I've written. And so these three types of sanctification are explained more fully if anybody wants to do a further study on that. With this understanding of sanctification, Hebrews is dealing with sanctification number one. Jesus has sanctified us. He's cleansed us. He's purified us from all sins. That's not a positional sanctification. That's not a progressive sanctification. That is a personal, actual, real sanctification that we live with every day. You can know that you have been purified forever for all sins and cleansed and forgiven of all sins. That's why we can be close to God. So Hebrews 10, 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are made holy. Again, the word being is not in the Greek manuscripts. Well, let's continue in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17. It says the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. So the Holy Spirit testifies about the New Testament. He's not testifying about the books of Matthew through Revelation. He's testifying about this New Testament of grace established in the blood of Jesus, and he testifies about it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. All right. So the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he, the Holy Spirit says, this is a quotation of Jeremiah 31, 33 specifically. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. It's a new testament. It's a new covenant. It's a new way of relating to God. I will put my laws, that's the word teachings or my instructions. 
about the New Testament of grace. I will put my teachings about this New Testament in their hearts. We see that in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, the Spirit writing the truths of the New Testament or the New Covenant of what Christ has done for us on our hearts. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. The, the Spirit of Christ writes on our minds the truths of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He writes on our hearts the truths of what Jesus has done for us in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he, that's the Holy Spirit, adds in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, then he, in testifying about this New Testament of grace, then he, the Holy Spirit, in prophesying through Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was writing about this coming New Testament, the Holy Spirit was giving the truths of the New Testament to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was writing these down. Then he, that's the Holy Spirit, adds, Jeremiah 31 through 34, this is verse 34, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's a key, key, that's the foundation of the New Testament of grace. I cannot enter into a close relationship with God if I think God's counting my sins against me. So the question is this, what does it mean that their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more? Even though this prophecy was initially made to the people of Israel, it's for the Gentiles as well. What is meant by their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question in Hebrews 10, 18. He provides that answer for us. Verse 18, and where these sins, these sins and lawless acts have been forgiven, that, that's what it means. I will remember no more. It simply means I have been forgiven. God's not counting our sins against us. So, some people will think, well, God doesn't know about my sins anymore, so why should I talk to him about my sins or even confess sins to God just in an honest, transparent relationship if he doesn't know about them. That's a misunderstanding of their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. It simply means I've forgiven them in the context. You have been forgiven. And so we can be honest and open and transparent with God about anything going on in our lives, sins that we're battling, successes that we've had. We can be open and honest. It simply means, it doesn't mean that God doesn't know they exist. Of course he does, but he's done something about them. He's forgiven them at the cross in this New Testament, and he's not counting our sins against us anymore. And where these sins have been forgiven, verse 18, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. In AD 65, put yourself in the shoes of a person or sandals, AD 65, of a person reading this literally in AD 65. You've been going to the temple. You've been taking a pigeon, a bird, a lamb, some, some animal to be sacrificed following the instructions of the book of Leviticus. The writer of Hebrews is seeking to convince you, a Jewish person, to stop going to the temple and sacrificing animals because Jesus is the final sacrifice for sins. Going to the temple to have your sins forgiven by these sacrificing of animals can't take away your sins, can't bring you close to God. If they could, you wouldn't have to stand in line all the time with an animal to be sacrificed. So you're reading this book of Hebrews in AD 65 as a Jewish person steeped in the law of Leviticus. 
and it's beginning to click. Okay, we're not under Leviticus anymore. We're not under Deuteronomy anymore. We're not sacrificing animals anymore. Jesus is the priest of Psalm 110 that was coming in the order of Melchizedek to establish the New Testament. He's the one who established the New Testament of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I don't have to offer any more sacrifices for sins. I mean, that's an aha moment for somebody reading in AD 65, Hebrews 1018. I mean, look what it says. And where these sins have been forgiven because of the blood of Jesus, New Testament, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. That's written to somebody in AD 65. Basically, it's saying hey, you don't have to get in line anymore with the pigeons. You don't have to get in line anymore with any animals. You are forgiven. Can you imagine the joy? You don't have to follow the Sabbaths and the festivals and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the fellowship offerings of Leviticus. You are free in Christ. That's what the writer of Galatians, Paul is saying in Galatia, you're free. Free to what? Enjoy our relationship with God because you know you're forgiven. See, a person can never enjoy their relationship with God if they don't think they're completely forgiven. If I've got to continue to ask for forgiveness, then I'm continually living in guilt. If I'm continually living in guilt, then I'm living like the ones under the law of Moses who were continually feeling guilt for their sins. That's in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. But Christ has taken our guilt, nailed it to the cross. We're now free in Christ, forgiven forever. For us, what we could say in Hebrews 10, 18 is you don't have to keep asking for forgiveness. Where these sins have been forgiven permanently, fully, forever. You don't have to keep asking for forgiveness. You are forgiven so that you can enjoy a close relationship with God. And then let's finish with Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. He's bringing this, all these teachings to an end right here. And then he's going to teach on some other things in throughout Hebrews. But he's really, this is, he's summarizing here of why this second Testament was established. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, no confidence under the law, no confidence if I'm still today asking God to forgive me over and over and over for sins. It's a lack of confidence in my relationship with God and a consistent presence of guilt in my relationship with God if I'm asking for forgiveness. The New Testament is I'm not asking for forgiveness. We accept forgiveness by faith. Acts 26, verse 18 Acts 13, 38, and 39 as well. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence because of the New Testament established in the blood of Jesus, because we're fully forgiven and righteous and perfect in the sight of God, because we've been made holy in the sight of God, and, and it's real, it's personal, it's actual, it's not positional or progressive, it is real. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the very presence of God by the blood of Jesus. So we enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because the blood of Jesus has forgiven all of our sins, cleansed us from all sins, purified us from all sins. Now I have confidence to enter into the presence of God and enjoy a close relationship with God without being consumed by his presence. They can never do that under the law. Most believers aren't under the law, but we're still not enjoying a close relationship with God because we've been convinced that sin causes us to be out of fellowship with God and we got to confess it to get right with God and to get back in the fellowship. That's all strange ways of relating to God that have nothing to do with what Christ has done for us. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that's the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, a new way. This is the new covenant, the, the cross, the blood of Christ. That's how we relate to God. And it's a living way. We live in the New Testament of grace every single day. We live as people who have been purified of all sins. We live as people who have been made holy. We live as people who are completely forgiven of all sins. That's how we live every day in this relationship with God, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. That is the body of Christ. The curtain separated the holy place and the most holy place. And only once a year, the, the high priest could go into the most holy place. Nobody could get close to God under the law. But in the New Testament of grace, anybody can be close to God because the blood of Christ has purified from all sins. The curtain was ripped, torn in two. It, it's now we relate to God in freedom and confidence, knowing we're forgiven and loved and pure and cleansed before God. And since we have a great priest, that's the one in the order of Melchizedek that the writer writes about. That's Psalm 110.4 and Hebrews 6 through 8. Over the house of God, that's the family of God. That's this family of grace. Let us draw near to God. Isn't that something? Knowing I'm forgiven, knowing I'm cleansed, knowing I'm purified, knowing I can never be out of fellowship with God. Let us draw near to God. With a sincere heart, honesty, transparency, closeness. And we can talk to God about whatever's going on in our lives with a sincere heart. Don't have to hide from God. Can be honest and open and transparent and real with God. With the full assurance that faith brings. The law brings no assurance. Faith in Christ and in his blood and what he's done is our assurance we're trusting in Christ, not ourselves. We draw close to God because of what Christ has done. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience that's cleansed, our hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, that's an interesting way to end this because the writer of Hebrews is trying to take the Jewish people away from washings away from baptisms or washings is how he puts it in, in the book of Hebrews. But he, he ends this summation with, and having our bodies washed with pure water. I think that's referring to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 30. I've taught on that in Hebrews teaching number 31, which is the brazen labor. It's on YouTube. It's also on the Grace Reach podcast. But I think that's referring more to the prophecy that Ezekiel made in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 30, that we would be washed with pure water, meaning the blood of Christ in this New Testament of grace. So this really takes us in this teaching. It kind of completes the thought of the writer of Hebrews. If he's trying to convince the Jewish people that they can draw close to God through what Jesus did for them at the cross. The law can't do it, but Jesus did it for them. Jesus did it for us. We have law-based preachers today. We have law-based Bible teachers and leaders and mentors and disciplers who are going to try to get us to do something to get close to God. 
Here's the truth of scripture. There's absolutely nothing you have to do to get close to God. Jesus did it all for you, leaving you nothing to do to get close to God. By faith, we receive what he's done, which then we are close to God. Christ lives in us, the very presence of God. And we enjoy that closeness every day of our lives. We cannot be out of fellowship. We can never be not close to God. We are close to God because of what Christ has done and the very presence of God now indwells us.